Hashtag save reg D. We are getting all kinds of social media fancy on this week's podcast episode. I caught up with my good buddy and attorney extraordinaire, Kevin Kim. As you'll find out in this episode, he is not the type of attorney you call if you get the cuffs slapped on you. Behave out there. Kevin is a partner at Jirasi Law Firm and really one of the most sought after minds in the private lending space. We chatted about all of the recent and upcoming acquisitions in private lending. I'm talking groups who are buying billion dollar lenders, the big, big boys. Also, we unpacked funds, F-U-N-D-S. What are they? Pros and cons, the history and the future, and hashtag save reg D. There is a minefield piece of legislation that could have massive, really scorched earth implications for real estate investors. On that note, thanks for joining. You're listening to the Real Estate of Things podcast. Welcome to the Real Estate of Things podcast. I'm your host, Dalton Elliott. Kevin Kim, one of my favorite attorneys in the whole wide world. How are you? I'm good, my friend. I'm good. How you doing? I am well. I was on your wonderful podcast a couple months ago for the recording, The Lenders Lounge, right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I love it. So everybody listening, go check out that podcast. Always great private lending insights there. You're a partner at Jirasi Law Firm, right? That I've known about them as long as I've been in this space. One of the preeminent firms in the private lending space. You lead their corporate and securities practice. Do I have that right? Yes, sir. You did your homework. I like it. <laughs> Touching notes. I stayed up all night. I, I, I crammed for the test. So what all goes on in the corporate and securities practice? What is that? What is it? Everyone knows Jirasi Law Firm as being, you know, primarily focused to serve the private lending industry. And so, you know, unlike banks and, you know, other financial institutions, a lot of our clients need to raise capital. And so my primary focus as uh, the department chair for Jirasi's corporate and securities team is our fund formation team. So we do a lot of fund formation and other kinds of securities offerings of all types across the country for lenders. And that's allowed us to really grow our footprint nationally. Most of my clients are no longer in California anymore. I have more clients in Texas, Florida, and Seattle than I do in California combined. And the nice part is, is that you know it's it's pretty across the spectrum. So it, you can be a brand new lender, just been done a few deals yourself, and want to you know kind of get more serious and start up a fund, or you can be a you know a shop like Lima One or other ones, and and you want to you know either clean up, improve, or upgrade your existing product offering from an investment perspective. And you know, lately with the industry being on fire, so is the demand. And so a lot of investors have discovered our sector as a really great place to invest. And so lo and behold, so is our practice growing as well. Beyond lending, we also work with real estate investors, developers, and uh, family offices on the real estate side of things. And so, you know, real estate syndications, your typical multifamily value add syndication, all the way up to, you know, your, you know, nationally held, you know, REITs that are meant for holding rental properties. We do them all here. And we also do some esoteric stuff like opportunity zone work and, and EV5 work because at the end of the day, it's tied to real estate, right? And so my background is, is primarily in real estate and finance and banking. And my law school, I guess the three years in law school is exclusively focusing on transactional corporate and security. So lo and behold, those two melded together when I joined Jirasi back in 14. So you are not the attorney I call if I'm in Vegas, gets too rowdy, get locked up. 
Yeah, I have a friend for that. So if you do happen to be, if we have all of our all our friends in the space, right? If you're if you ever get in trouble in Las Vegas, actually, one of my really good friends, I just went to his wedding. He's a very very well known attorney. Practices in Las Vegas and get and get you out of hot water. So <laughs> let me know. I'll call him up for you. <laughs> Hopefully, never needed. But it's always good to know. You never know. Vegas is a crazy place. A lot of bad things happen there. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So you touched on one thing, which has been a cornerstone of the last 12 months. Oddly enough, in the middle of a global pandemic is when all this transactioning is happening, but it has been buying season for heavy hitters. If you if you got money in the pocket and you want to get into this space, why don't I just buy a lender who's doing hundreds of millions or even a billion, billion and a half a year? I'll just buy the firm and add them. My day job, working as a director at a private lender company, Lingwon Capital. That happened to us, right? MFA, publicly traded REIT, Real Estate Investment Trust. They acquired us over the summer. And you know we do billion and a half a year. And you guys weren't the only ones past year got acquired. I mean, there, were, there were like, you know, headline level acquisitions. You guys were the big one for the year, but there were a lot more and we're going to see a lot more coming. You know, I would say in the next six months, uh, six months, three months, by the end of the year. And then the first, first quarter after that, I mean, you're right. A nail on the head. It is buying season. And you'd be surprised who the buyers are, right? Your guys' acquisition was kind of like, okay, that, that makes sense. We kind of saw it coming, right? And it was a logical expansion of the investment. But man, it you're starting to see a lot of attention coming from institutions and you know even retail operations that you know it feels like, oh, they were really sad they missed the boat three years ago. And this is their opportunity to really jump in. And yeah, it's it's very fraught and up and down the spectrum too, right? So like you know, companies as large as Lima One, sure, right? Even the small companies are doing maybe twenty million a month. Nothing crazy, right? They're getting offers for minority acquisition position from pretty large, you know, institutions and hedge funds, and it's pretty frothy right now. The, the multipliers are not where they used to be uh, even a year ago. So it's definitely a very interesting time. Yeah, let, let's unpack that. So you said, you know, a lot of groups that you wouldn't expect, you know, us getting acquired by a, a company that had a stake in us previously, their real estate investment trust, we lend on real estate, makes complete sense. What are some examples of other types of groups that are coming in and, you know, our space is grabbing their attention and they're jumping in? Not names necessarily. I can't name names. I obviously can't name names. But, you know, the interesting part, well, I mean, I guess I can, I can name this. The civic acquisition was kind of a head scratcher at first, but then it's after I interviewed Bill on my podcast, he explained the fact pattern, right? Because they had already been buying loans. So they already had a pre-existing relationship. But that was kind of a head scratcher at first because when you hear about a bank jumping in and acquiring a, lend- a private lender, and that, you know, kind of, for me, I used to be a banker. So I, used, I, I see that. I'm like, wow, that's an interesting move from the bank's perspective. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, even... Banks, retail, you know, they actually do depository banking, not investment banking, are looking at this, but also home buyers, right? These these large, these large i buyers that we saw back in the back in the tens, right? A lot of them have become very institutionalized, have have several billion under management, and you know, this is a, a natural evolution for their business. And so you'll see a lot of that trying to make deals happen, trying to make moves, sometimes a little bit too aggressively. I think the next year or so, you're going to start seeing companies backed by groups like that. And then at the same time, you're probably going to see some consolidation within the market too. So you know, I think there's room for that. I think there are companies that have very similar mandates and, 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 and perspectives and cultures. And 
you know, it, it oftentimes makes sense, you know, and one group may, you know, dominate one part of the country versus the other. And this could be of all sizes too, but the idea being is consolidation. People talk about acquisition a lot, but we don't talk about consolidation. I think we're going to see a lot of consolidation in a year or so once the value, you know, valuations kind of calm down and, and, you know, you're not seeing as much, uh, what I would consider balance sheet risk taking going on. And once that kind of calms down, that's kind of probably happen. But on the flip side, like we're back to what we're talking about, what was very interesting to hear about was, you know, the past year now. So we're looking, we have almost 10 months now for this year, 2021. It's, you know, we saw a lot of bids happening and conversations happening about very, very large companies. You know, the rumor rumor mill is spinning about, you know, Genesis being on the on the docket for sale. And, you know, I don't know who the buyer is, but we'll see in the next few months with how that plays out. And other national shops are likely going to be sold or combined in the next year or so. And it's all going to be kind of one of those, what's that? Like, kind of an interesting uh, result, right? Back in 14 or 15 when Goldman bought Genesis, we were all like, Oh, this is it, right? This is it. The institutions are coming, right? But then that didn't really, it was kind of too soon. But I think now, I think what, what, what you need to have, I think the, the, the move seems to be is the acquiring party needs to have a pre-existing relationship with the, with the target. That seems to be a prerequisite these days, just like you guys. And then the second thing seems to be they have to be somewhat ancillarily related to residential real estate, right? Whether they're a home builder, an iBuyer, someone who is somewhat touching touching the space because otherwise you don't have the policies and procedures and infrastructure to build it out because it's just, it's just a, such a unique business. So, you know, I think that's going to be a trend going forward. That makes sense. This not needing to be or not being the prudent decision for somebody's first dip in the toe in the water. You at least have bought some loan flow from this space. I think that seems to be the case. Yeah. Some kind of, yeah. You've invested somehow in the space, right? And, or you've either, you know, one, one thing that kind of someone asked me before was like, why are the home, home buyers jumping in? Well, the home buyers are jumping in. This is automatically the next expansion plan for them, right? How else are they, they going to get their hands on inventory? But, you know, at the same time, the question mark is like the portfolio. Have they been investing in some of these securitizations? Have they been investing in some of these, you know, some of these funds? That may also be an indicator. Yeah. So it's been, you know, not just us, a bunch of companies, like you mentioned, getting acquired. Does it feels like there's the chance that this is going to cool off sooner than later? You think so? I think it's not. I mean, here's the thing. Cool off is a very tricky word from a securities attorney perspective, right? I think it's going to be a different strategy, right? So people say it's going to be, it's going to cool off. I think it's going to cool off in the sense that you're going to see fix and flip shift gears a little bit, right? Rental is going to be a much more dominant force from when it comes to the loan aggregation model and securitization model. Fix and flip, I think, is going to transition to more of a balance sheet move. And I think it's going to tr- transition to more of a, like, a, you know, on the commercial side, right? In the commercial sector, you see a lot of life, life companies get in, who have allocations in the space. I think we're going to start seeing that type of activity happening. And that's going to change dynamics a little bit. Because it, you don't, I mean, the securitization model for fix and flip and bridge, it's doable, it's possible, but it, it's not as simple as a DSCR model, a product would be. And it requires a lot of exception work and a lot of kind of creative structuring. So, it, but it's a perfect tool for balance sheets because it's short term and it's esoteric, but it, it has all the features that a fixed income strategy, strategy would want. So I think we're going to see a shift in gears in the next, I would say, year or two. And that bodes well for the retail lenders who are not necessarily conforming to Wall Street standards because they can continue to be esoteric and continue to be a little more outside the box, if you will, but also attract that life money. 
So, so how does this translate, you know, one, two, three, five years down the road for the investor who's getting loans from the, the lenders in the space that are getting acquired today? Because you look at a lot of the companies that have been acquired and will be acquired in the near future, a lot of them stocked with their original, most of their original founders and executive leadership team. You have just a new parent coming in, which changes inevitably changes the dynamic, no matter what relationship you had prior. And then the consolidation you mentioned that you know, think will continue to or really start happening uh, down the road, which is a kind of common sense. Don't have to stretch the imagination too far to, to see that that's going to happen. So, so how do these things culminate to affect the end client, folks who are getting the loans? At the end of the day, that's the most important thing, right? The borrower experience, right? Borrower, and that's the funny part of this space is that, like, you know, when we were talking about multipliers, you know, and, and acquisitions two years ago and three years ago, I was arguing, I think it was on a panel actually, I was arguing that, that you can't use the traditional EBITDA multiplier in this space. This space is more akin to professional services, right? Like a law firm, CPA firm, because at the end of the day, it's the LO that has the relationship, right? At the end of the day, it's that book of business that you're looking for. And so the acquisition model where you know you see in private equity where you acquire, keep the executives on board, gut the team, install new people, that doesn't work in this space. And all the successful models you've seen so far, acquisitions you've seen so far, have kept not just the executive team, but a lot of the core employees. And that's important because you can't lose that borrower relationship. If you know your top LO is let go after an acquisition and he moves to competitor, where do you think those borrowers are going to go? The borrowers don't care about the the the, the parent company. They they work exa- They make they like working with that company because Bob Smith, the LO, is taking care of them, the builder, right, the flipper, the investor, right. And so I always tell people, listen, if you're gonna be if you're gonna be acquired, and and the term sheet says there's no discussion about employment and you know the executive team and the officers and all the other employees in your in your company, if you aren't planning for that at the beginning, the term sheet term sheet phase, you might as well unless you're walking away from the business. Right, you might as you might as well say another deal because you're gonna your business is gonna you're just gonna business is gonna cave, right? Those relationships, those business relationships, especially in fix and flip, right? It's that repeat builder relationship, repeat, repeat borrower relationship that everyone wants, right? And so you cannot risk that. I think that with consolidation, the one of the most things that easily easiest things to overlook is going to be that, right? And so it's going to be very important. On both the acquiring side and also the, the selling side, to remember to keep those key performers in place. Because if you're a borrower right now, if you're a borrower, I mean, you have every opportunity to get the best deal possible, right? For yourself, which whatever that means, that could be speed, that could be price, that could be service, it could be anything, right? Whatever whatever floats your boat as an investor, right? Well, there's never been so much opportunity on that front, right? So. You as the lender need to understand that you need to make it make it easier for your borrower to work with you, and you need to keep them sticky. So, if you're going to sell your company, you need to be very cognizant of that to the minute level. I've seen so many people overlook that issue, and they don't think about that, and they think about this as a, as kind of a they view this as a private equity play, and it's, it's different. This is a bit book of business kind of uh, model. You ha- you cannot devalue that. Yeah, it's become so much. I've been in the space six and a half years and so much more commoditized now than it was when I got in six and a half years ago. Our product development, we could make, you know, one or two changes to rate or fee or leverage and just be knocking it out of the park and 
best crew in town and you know it would take a couple months before another group would would pile on and beat us out in a particular strat we'd go back to the drawing board but now your top lenders all play in the same pool more or less so yeah it is we had a customer experience consultant come in a couple years ago and uh, her biggest advice very simple and something I think easy to forget though is you want them to do business with you as the person, right? It's easy for somebody to say no to or break up with ABC Lending, this company name, but it's a lot harder to look Dalton Elliott in the eye and do that or try to not work it out. She's right. I mean, people do business with who they like and this and, and the mortgage industry as a whole has forgotten that. The one thing that private lending has has stuck very, very hard onto, and I think this is because we're so fragmented and we have so many different product offerings, is we're so obsessed about those those business relationships. But you see that you see that lose its touch a little bit as these companies grow and grow, right? They're 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 trying to get to a, a level of scale where that doesn't matter anymore in their mind. And that's furthest from the truth. You know? And and all of this is all the successful large companies that we talk to on my show, and you know, I'm sure you have as well, all talk about that, right? That sticky borrower relationship, that customer service. You cannot forget that in this space because, you know, Bob Smith, the borrower, Bob Jones, the borrower can now just shop your deal everywhere else the second he feels like he's being treated as just another borrower. And the easiest way possible in, in five minutes on the phone, sitting on the couch, you can get, you know, Three quotes from three different lenders, and and everyone's monet- everyone's optimizing their their online presence so they can really get a they can find out Bob Jones is shopping. So it's 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 you know it's never been a worse time in that context. Like you have to be, be super vigilant when it comes to your customer service and your borrower relationships, and and you see that. And a lot of companies are now really doubling down on kind of account executive level people and really paying a premium for those books of business. So. Yeah, I have never, you know, in my experience at Lima One, I've never been busier on the product development side, the sales training side, the tech side. We have IT meetings every single day. We have stand-ups five days a week. Sometimes I want to tear my eyes out. But it is, you have to keep every single one of those balls moving towards the end zone because everybody else is, right? You know, we're, we're in South Carolina. So all of our competition in Florida and New York and Texas and California you assume that every lender over the fence is doing that. And if you're not doing it, you're going to fall apart. And the make it easy piece that you talk about, I'm, you know, I'm director of sales and customer experience. And on the CX side of the fence, I have 72 font written in my office. Just make it easy. That has to be the cornerstone of everything. It's like from a borrower's perspective, make everything as easy as possible. Every touch point, reduce the number of total folks that they're working with. Because it's just so easy for somebody to go somewhere else now. You gotta set yourself up for success. You know, years ago, Nima and I were on a, on a panel. And we're talking about, like, you know, Amazon was smart. They did buy with one click, right? You can buy something with one click, right? What are and we challenged the audience: What are you doing to make it easier on your borrower, right? To optimize the underwriting because that's the most painful process, right? The underwriting process and get him an approval as fast as he needs it to be. And how? What are you doing to optimize it with your long-term relationships, right? So it's so challenging because you're right. You know this hyper competitive world and, and there's also so much technology out there right now that's built for the mortgage space you know so it, but, it, it, but it also creates an exciting time we all get together and we're, we're all seeing what each other's doing and it's all it's all pushing us to get better you know 
Yeah. And then so much room to try new things and not everything, of course, like not everything you try works out, but just push pushes all of us to be more creative and think outside the box. Whereas just tweaking like, Oh, we're, you know, we're not as competitive as we were two months ago. Let's lower rate, lower fee. It's, it's way beyond that now. That's the, mortgage, that's the conventional space, right? That's how it's done on the conventional side. And it's, it always it always drives me nuts to see those guys like all there's so many of them and they're so standardized they're literally selling the same widget just with one little twist compared to everybody else right and I fear that for our space thankfully you know fix and flip and and bridge and construction is more more commercially oriented I feel like and so that gives us a little more room I feel I feel like personally. So I'm not envisioning a mass standardization in the space, unlike some of my colleagues. So I, I'm with you. It, it doesn't just doesn't seem the direction we're headed. Just don't feel it. Don't see it. So let's talk about the fun side of the business. F U N D. Walk me through kind of an E L I five. Explain to me like I'm five. What is a fund? How does it work? What are the benefits and the downsides and the treacheries? Give me the dirty. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the uh, the way you put it, right? Because the simplest idea of a fund is essentially if you're an investor, right? Whether you're an investor who's retail and buying a few houses, or you are a seasoned hedge fund manager, right? The idea is is that you want to be able to have more buying power, and you personally don't have that much capital. You're limited, right? Well, the idea is, can you go out there and raise and pool money from other investors? Right, whether they be you know your friends and family, or you know, other family offices, or other institutions, pull the, that capital together and acquire more of the assets that you're pursuing in exchange for a rate of return to the investor. Right, and that's what at the end of the day, whether it's a hedge fund, private equity, NPL, mortgage, real estate. At the end of the day, the goal here is to create a pool of assets that generate some type of return on capital, and it's funded by pooling investor capital into one vehicle, into an entity, right? And it can be done via an LP, LLC structure. It can be done via, you know, some kind of creative debt structure. Either which way you do it, the idea is to pool the assets together to have more buying power and to have more uh, more return, right? And also to spread the risk, right? And so in the world of mortgages and in the private lending side, the market used to not have as much capital. And a lot of investors loved the industry from a return standpoint, and they wanted to get in, but they didn't want to become a lender themselves. Lo and behold, the fund model translated over from real estate and from the conventional side and the subprime days. And, you know, it, it models a very similar two and 20 hedge fund model, nothing crazy. And the idea is, is that the sponsor will go out there and raise money from, you know, as many high net worth investors as they can into an LP or an LLC. And then that LP or LLC will go out and either invest in or fund loans and hold them on its balance sheet. And that will generate income, right? And, and and that income is returned to the investor on a monthly or quarterly basis. And so the beautiful part about this strategy is from an investor standpoint, and this can also be done for real estate, right? You invest in, you know, we're going to invest in, you know, 10 units, 10 pieces of multifamily, real estate, value add, hold, stabilize, rent, and then eventually sell. And we're doing that in a larger pool. Instead of doing one-off assets that are smaller, I can scale up my business, right? And so... Well, at the end of the day, though, it gives you more buying power. It lets you spread risk across the spectrum. But also for you, the investor, from an investor standpoint, it gets you access to an industry that you normally would not be able to get to, or you'd be stuck to buying stuff that's on Wall Street that has you know loads of leverage, loads of fees, 
and and it just really isn't your 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 cup of tea, right? You have really no say as to what they're doing. Whereas a lot of these funds are still, you know, even if they're managing a billion dollars, they're still managed privately, right? And so there's that benefit, and so the investor can really pick and choose based off of their appetite. On the sponsor side, you get a lot of horsepower by raising the money, and not everyone can raise money. I keep telling people like a fund's not for everybody, right? The the idea of a fund, you have to be you have to be committed to going out there and raising money, whether it be from retail friends and family or retail investors or the larger investor, right? You still have to be able to do it and commit time to it and commit energy to it, right? And so and if you can, you can become, you know, some of these, the equivalent of some of these larger you know, real estate or mortgage operators, much likely one, right? And scale and scale and scale, right? And we've been part of that story for some of our, of many of our clients. And they started up literally just, hey, I'm new to the space, starting my own lending business. I've been brokering some deals. I want to start a fund. And now they're managing two, three, four hundred million and originating, you know, sub one billion to Wall Street and all that. All the, and they have multiple credit lines and their business has evolved, right? They have truly a mortgage business. And that's one piece of that puzzle. How has activity in that been through the pandemic, through today? I imagine just on fire like every other part of the industry. Yeah, you know, it, it, the I, I was on a couple different panels talking about this. The fascinating part about people who have discretionary capital and balance sheet capability and were not so reliant on Wall Street where the pandemic didn't slow them down, right? March happened to everybody. I feel like March was a reality for everybody. We all kind of like popped our heads up and we're like, all right, something's wrong. Let's take a breath and figure things out. But unlike a lot of our folks who are really dependent upon Wall Street, our balance sheet strategy, our discretionary capital, our fund managers, they were able to get back out there you know, as soon as end of March, early April, even charge higher rates, lower their risk, and they, they thrived. One of my clients was on my show, Noah Broch is a capital fund in Arizona. You know, he 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 had a record year, and the nice part about it was, you know, it allowed him to grow the portfolio and attract new type, new investor classes and grow even more. And now he is, you know, flirting with some really big opportunities. And his colleagues are kind of in the same boat. And so that was the interesting part to see. And also at the same time, some you know interesting tax laws that came out in seventeen. So people were able to take advantage of that. And investors, I mean, don't mean the investor market. You know, the retail investor market was really, really looking for something like this. Because you think about what they've been investing in so far, there's just massive volatility all over Wall Street. You know, the S&P is doing just fine, but it's just all over the place. It's just what what's going on. Every core index is just kind of so volatile. I don't know what to do, right? And aside from Bitcoin, you know, what, you know which is all, all over the place, you know, people are like, oh, Bitcoin, this, Bitcoin, that. You know, one of the things that was being talked about was, well, let's look at real estate, right? And so we saw a lot of the core markets that were not impacted by, by the pandemic do very well. And our space was one of them. And that allowed the industry to really jump back on its feet with, I mean, I would call it just massive fervor in June, July, right? And so here we are today, the market's never been hotter on both sides, right? Whether you're working with Wall Street, whether you're balance sheet, both sides of the business are just doing gangbusters right now. And I think it has to do with confidence in real estate. I think it has to do with confidence in this asset class, right? And I think it's it's just going to get better over the next, I would say, two, three years. So I didn't even think about the points you just brought up about kind of April, May, June, that if you had a fund model, you were good to go, right? That, that the whole... If you had discretionary capital at your whim and call, right? You can make this call right there. You don't have to worry about it. And you and I talked about this on my show. Like, 
you guys weren't that impacted either, right? And so you had the ability to get out there. And but a lot of folks were hundred percent reliant on Wall Street. And so that taught a lot of lessons. And we, I mean, we're a reflection of that too, right? So my practice is a reflection of that. We never we had a record year last year too. We created more funds than we had ever done before, specifically debt funds. We do a lot of different things, right? Last year was just the year of the debt fund and, and also the year of the mortgage rate. And so many things were stood up last year because of that. So Reg D, before before I just dropped the bomb out there, <laughs> a hard hard break on the fun talk and hit the gas on on this. It is ever relevant. So Reg D, you're going to explain it much better than me, but my basic understanding of it is that it prohibits self directed IRA investments in real estate. So Reg D is the regulation that we're all using. There is a hashtag going around that Nima and, I, and my partner Nima and I started called Save Reg D. And though, so this has to do with the the the, the, the Build Back, I'm going to put in air quotes, Build Back Better Act, right? Put out by the Biden administration as part of this joint legislative effort to pass the $1.5 trillion infrastructure bill and the $3.5 billion budget bill. And this is part of the $3.5 trillion budget bill. And so everyone was all in the news. Everyone saw, everyone saw in the news 3.5 trillion this, right? Tax raise this. And we all saw that, right? And, and I can go on and on about the taxes. And, you know, I'm pretty conservative myself and I'm not really that interested in seeing taxes go up. But that's not the focus of the, the, what the law firm's kind of mission is right now. The hashtag Save Reg D is part of uh, Jirasi and the American Association of Private Lenders, Government Relations Committee's effort to raise awareness and contact our Congress people about sections 138312 and 138314 of the Build Back Better Act, right? And these two sections are really, really bad news. Really, really, really bad news. And and what they're about are about they're specifically tailored to IRAs. Right? They're they're designed to essentially put a I would say ankle bracelet <laughs> or handcuffs on an IRA IRA investor. And so Take us back to June of this past year, right? Peter Thiel got in trouble, got in the news because he had some ridiculously large IRA, right? Some ridiculously large Roth IRA. And, you know, that that and many other billionaires, right? And what the story was that they had invested, you know, their proceeds from one investment, a small amount, into a larger investment. They netted a very, very large check, all done via an IRA, IRA and so no taxes. Well, you know, apparently Democrats didn't like that too much. And so they proposed as part of the Build Back Better Act was, number one, we're going to prohibit IRA investors to use their IRA to invest in any investment that, re- that has a net worth requirement or uh, off- that offers securities that has a net worth requirement or a financial education requirement, which is essentially a Reg D. Right? There's no other regulation out there that has a net worth or financial education requirement. So when I read it, I was like, wait, wait, wait a minute, they're going after Reg D on this. And all of them, all of the IRA custodians were freaking out. My fund manager clients were freaking out. And I, and I was like, what, 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 what? Let, me, let me read this thing real quick. And it was specifically designed to attack Reg D. And Reg D, for those of you guys who don't know, I mean, I think some ridiculous number, like $12 trillion in the past seven years were raised using Reg D. And so you, you got to think, it's not just for the you know, the hedge funds and the private equity funds. We use it a lot in the in the residential mortgage space, but so do our our real estate investors, right? Our and borrowers are using Reg D to syndicate these larger pools of real estate or buy multifamily or whatever. And so 
what this would do essentially would say, if you were in an IRA, you cannot invest in a Reg D investment. And if you are invested, you must divest by I think the year like 2023 or something like that. You have to get out. So not only is it an outright ban, but it also requires people who have holdings to divest and, and go somewhere else, essentially, put it in put it in the stock market or something like that. Right. And what's frustrating about this law is that this is a tax bill. We're trying to raise tax revenue. Okay. I get it. Fine. Right. That's fine. What does this do? This is nothing. Literally nothing. Not only does it not only does it raise no tax revenue, but it's essentially telling people with their hard-earned money where they can and cannot invest. And who does it serve? It serves Wall Street. It is counter. It's kind of funny because, in my opinion, it's counter to the Obama administration's Jobs Act agenda to democratize and create more more means of private investment. So we are really mobilizing hard with APL. And really trying to get, get our audience out there. So if you're if you're in the state of Arizona, especially, contact your local congressman, contact Senator Cinema, and really put it out there. If you're interested in more, learning more, you can go on our website, drawsylawfirm.com. We have a big campaign going, Save Reg D, because this is not just for the mortgage space. This is actually for every private investment that you can possibly think of. Yeah, it's such a massive story that's not getting enough attention in the space. I think it's so easy for the actual impact of this to get buried and ignored under the billionaire has, I can't remember the number, but it was nine, maybe 10 figures in the IRA, a massive amount of money. So, And that's the thing. If you guys want to get rid of checkbook control or you guys want to get rid of backdoor Roth, fine, right? I get it. I don't necessarily agree with that either, right? But this is an outright ban. Like this is stupid. Like this is you're trying to pen, you're trying to penalize that tiny zero point zero one percent of the population, and the ramifications are going to be just massive. I mean, even I have my own, you know, IRA, and I'm I'm you know I'm I'm an attorney. There are so many. I mean, how many of our borrowers, right, or our clients' borrowers, are holding their real estate holdings in an IRA, right? Not just the rental, the the flips, the you know, and and. How many of our investors across the spectrum, whether you're Wall Street or you know, they're invested through their IRA, this is ridiculous. I think this is going to be the worst thing to happen to private investment. I mean, since the 33 Act was installed, in my opinion. But I mean, there's a lot of we have a lot of things going for us, though. This this bill is not really likely to pass as it stands right now. So we're telling everyone stick to it. Contact your congressman if you're in Arizona, especially. Contact your congressman and senator. Because this is not going to go anywhere. It's going to come back in some form. Yeah. I mean, the the bill in its entirety, you know, a minefield of conversation, but the Reg D part of it, just the implications from it, uh, ill-conceived and a scorched earth approach. Yeah. I, I think it's so it's so blatantly clear what the knee-jerk objective was and the, the massive fallout if it passes as is. Uh, devastating is not... A hyperbolic word to attach to what, what effect this will have. I mean, you got to think about this. Like twelve, from the stats that the SEC put to Congress. Congress asked for a report. Congress, the SEC put a report to Congress last year on when they were improving Reg D, and they and they found there's twelve trillion dollars raised through Reg D. Right? And a big chunk of that was in, in private funds. But this is also also used by startup companies. This is also used by you know real estate developers. So this is so counter to it. And the funny part is that it raises no money. It literally zero dollars. Right? All it does is ban you from doing something. It frightens me of where we're going with this because clearly 
it serves the interests of the Wall Street type funds where you can you're free to invest in that. But you know, I, I think it's a, a dangerous place to be. But thankfully, thankfully, the bill is kind of not moving forward just yet. We've heard that although the temporary debt ceiling increase, it's not you know it's not all one package anymore. So there's a like high likelihood that this is going to go back to the drawing board. They're going to renegotiate the terms of it. But my fear is, is that because this is so kind of buried in the bill, in the summary, it's like on the last page of it. It's about something that no one really understands. Yeah, a high, high risk item. Right. It can be overglossed very easily, right? Everyone's going to pay attention to the capital gains rate and the income tax rate and the penalties and all that kind of stuff. And they're not going to pay attention to this. But if you have any stake in private investment, you know, this is going to be a big game changer. I mean, I have so many clients that have like most of their offerings are funded through IRA investors, self-directed, you know, it's just a huge marketplace. Hashtag save reg D, right? Very much so. Very much so. Hashtag save reg D. Check out our website. We have a lot of literature there, but more importantly, you know, get that, send it over. But if you are in the state of Arizona or if you are in the state of West Virginia, Senator Manchin and Senator Cinema have vocally opposed this bill. And so we encourage you people to call and make your voices heard. I love it. We'll see if we can get Save Reg D somewhere in the video here, somewhere up, down, corner, top, bottom, for sure. So on to some more important business. I hear your favorite films, Dark Knight, Ode to My Father, and The Rock. Is, is there truth about this? So I loved The Rock growing up. It's a, a beautiful Sean Connery, Nicolas Cage, Ed Harris. Just, just some hits. You, I mean, heavy hitters. But it's for me, it was like they're reloading. <laughs> that was the thing. I never watched. A, I never watched an action flick where they actually reloaded. I'm like, they're reloading. This is awesome. So it was. That was the reason why I love that movie so much. The little details, you know. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Now, I also love Dark Knight. One of my favorite movies. You know, Daniel Craig just wrapped his last Bond movie. I was out at lunch earlier with some colleagues, and I was like. Daniel Craig will be our bond forever because, you know, throughout our years as young boys and that was our James Bond, right? Pierce Brosnan at the very beginning, but Daniel Craig is our guy and always will be. And in that same vein, even though, you know, the spectacular Clooney Batman, Michael Keaton, (laughs) Michael Keaton, Val Kilmer, like Christian Bale, he's... He's the Batman of of my generation. He's the best Batman, in my opinion. I really do believe that. I mean, this whole DC cinema, you know, Ben Affleck Batman's pretty cool, but you know, you can't you can't beat Christian Bale. I mean, you just can't. I mean, he's awesome. He's he's a great actor too. So I love it. So so I have a couple of uh, quirky questions here, if you don't mind. Yeah, go for it. So who's playing Kevin Kim in a movie? Oh, that's a good one. Who's suiting up to play you? You know, I, I don't know if you guys have ever seen. Oh man, there's it's on Netflix. I forget the movie's name. It, it's uh, I can't remember. Uh, it's, so his, the actor's name is Randall Park. He he's a, he was in uh, Fresh Off the Boat. He's a dad in Fresh Off the Boat. He was in uh, Always Be My Maybe with Ali Wong, and he's actually like one of the most like hilarious Korean American actors out there. And he also makes a lot of dad jokes, right? And so I feel like you know if anyone were to play me. I'd want him to do it. But beyond that, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, besides Randall Park, I mean, you know, someone someone told me that, I forget what his name was. There's another really, really well-known actor. 
it's the guy I forget his name. Oh yeah, so this is the, the guy who played Odd Job. <laughs> you know, kind of a burly Asian dude. <laughs> they said you should you should be played by Odd Job. That was that, that the guy that guy. But speaking of James Bond, but yeah, I mean, that's probably it. Oh, I can see that right apart. That's a good pick. It's uh, my my aspirational one would be Daniel Craig. I I think I have a little more room to fill out in the sleeve of this by uh, the bicep of this polo before that actually makes any sense. Dude's uh, twenty years older. No, man, but there's there's a he has some movies where he's pretty thin. He thin he thins out and uh, yeah, but pre Bond days. But since he since he came out of the ocean in that blue. We'll call it a swimsuit. He added like eighty pounds of muscle for that for that for for being to be up to become Bond, right? Man, yeah, he's uh, he's different different beast now. So even though he's like thirty years older than me and in ten times as good a shape, that'd be my pick. You you travel a bunch. I met you on the road. I think I met you in Vegas at uh, AAPL many 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 years ago. And what what are your travel rituals? Is there something you do? Yeah, to walk me through your travel rituals. A lot of them, yeah. So I travel a lot, but I have two young children. One's almost four, and one's eleven months. So there has to be a whole explanation, you know, where am I? I'm not. I'm. I'm, I'm going to be gone for a couple of days, and they're kind of excited because they get they get mommy all to themselves, right? So that that's that's the first part. Packing of the bags, right? You have to make sure. I have to make sure I have. I don't usually wear hair product because I just I fear losing my hair, right? So my dad's bald, so. I always forget to pack it. I've forgotten a few times. So like I always make sure I have my hair product. I always make sure I have some type of Jurassic gear with me, a sweater, a golf shirt, a magnetic pin, something, right? Got to rep the brand. And then if we're going to Las Vegas, which is like 90% of where I go, right? It's I always pack a little, it's a little portable humidifier because if you spend more than a day in Vegas, you'll know it's like just the moisture gets sucked out of you because it's so dry. And the air conditioning and the smoke and it's just so I it's a little like the size of a little like Bluetooth speaker. You stick a bottle in it, you plug it in, you put it next to your bed. It's saved my voice, saved my face, saved my lips. It's just it's it's the best thing ever. And then the last thing is must 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 have is TSA precheck. Like I I I will not travel without my TSA precheck because I I refuse to stand in line like a regular traveler. Take my shoes off, my belt off. And yeah, that's a must for me. Yeah, yeah. If you're listening and don't have TSA PreCheck, do not go get it because we don't need any longer lines. It's the best kept secret in travel. It comes out to like $17 a year is what the annual... Yeah, most credit cards pay for it. So like my credit card covers it. Yeah, same. It's 85 every five years. And I was talking... I just got back from a trip last week and was telling my wife, I was like, if they charged $500 a year and I flew twice a year, I would do it. It's just... It's a time saver. It's a convenience. Like you said, you don't have to strip down half naked in the airport and, and be accosted. And for me, I try I pack a lot of stuff in my in my in my carry-on and having to pull your backpack out and having to pull your laptop out and other stuff, it just causes all kinds of things. And the worst is when they make you take your belt off. I feel like that's the worst. Cause like you never know when your pants are gonna fall down. You just gotta hold your pants up. It's just uh, it's just I'm an adult. I'm just trying to travel and do a respectable thing, and I'm getting treated like a criminal. I'm not doing anything wrong. So I love it. You need it. You need it. especially when you go to Las Vegas because the McCarran Airport TSA line is like there's nobody in it. Literally nobody in it. So you just walk right through. You can get to your flight like 30 minutes before and just walk to the gate. Yeah, 
It is a lifesaver. Have you have you had to get back in packing shape? Oh yeah. Yeah, I was surprised. I went to a Pitbull conference in April of this year, April 2020, 2021. And six months ago, that was the first work trip. And I was there, I went down a couple days earlier with my wife, just hanging out in Miami. But so I was there for maybe five days. I feel like I packed for a summer in Europe. I got to the hotel. I was like, I have way too much stuff. And every trip... I think this last trip, I finally got back into bare essentials where I got home. Everything went to the laundry because I wore everything, didn't have any excess. I think I had an extra pair of underwear and socks, which is always, you know, you always overpack those two essentials. Uh, yeah, it surprised me how there is, there's an art that can be forgotten if you're not on the road. Even how you fold things. And like, I use the old fashioned garment bag, like the folding garment bag from the 90s. My dad gave it to me. And it's the best because the suit traveling with a suit is the hardest thing, right? It's figuring out how, how to do that again. But I'll tell you this much. The worst thing for me was having been at home for a solid year, not on my feet. And then I went to my first conference. It was actually our show in March and in Newport Beach. And I was in dress shoes all day on my feet. I'm like, my feet hurt so much. What the hell? And it made me realize, oh my God, I've been sitting down for a solid year. And at, at work from home, I haven't had to do this. So my body forgot how to conference. I know. Out of conference shape. Same thing. We were, we were at uh, IMN Miami. And you know how we, like if you are a sponsor at a certain level, you have a private meeting room above the ballroom. And midday through the first day or mid-afternoon, I went up there and Courtney, you know, Courtney Newman's, you know, sixth employee here travels all the time. He was plopped down, just sprawled out in a chair. I was like, what's up? You what's going on? He's like, I, I'm dead tired. He's like, guys, this is, and I was like, yep. You don't have the endurance anymore. My voice, I lost my voice really, really soon because like, what the hell? And then well, the one thing that I did gain was the ability to drink more. <laughs> yes, same. My tolerance went to the roof because I drank so much during COVID. <laughs> Yeah, I was. I usually would just pre-COVID, I would have no more than two drinks at the networking hour because then you knew you had dinner and then you're going out and stuff. I had two drinks, flew through those. I was like, I don't know, get back, let's go. We got to hit four or five before we get dinner and then we'll... Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it's cool though. I mean, the nice part is we're all, what I was worried about this year was, you know, how are we all going to react? And I think what we all realized was like, we need to get in front of each other. We can't. We have to like th- this whole idea of being behind a Zoom screen to do business is it only goes so far. Yeah, it is great to be back in the wild. I will see you in less than a couple of months. Yeah, we'll be in Scottsdale. Yep, that's it. I love it. I love it. Kevin Kim, partner and face of Jurassi. Always a pleasure chatting with you, my man. Thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having me on, man. I really have fun. Absolutely. Take care. Talk soon. Are you a real estate investor looking for the right lender that can finance all your deals and help you scale? Lima One Capital has the best suite of loan products in the industry bar none. Whether that's fix and flips, fix and holds, building new construction, or buying rental properties, they have incredible financing solutions for it all. A reliable, common-sense lender is one of the most important parts of your investment team. And that's exactly what you get with Lima One. Let Lima One Capital show you how they've helped thousands of real estate investors scale and increase their wealth. 
Check out LimaOne.com or call 800-259-0595 to speak with a consultant in preparation for your next project. Thank you for joining us today on the Real Estate of Things podcast. Subscribe and tune in weekly for new content from the industry's best while we continue to unpack the nuances of this dynamic market. Follow us across social media for additional insights and analysis on the topics covered in each episode. And remember to rate, review, and share the show.